Welcome to the Table Dallas podcast. At the Table Dallas, we create a sacred space to worship, connecting our stories with the story of God as revealed in scriptures. We invite you now to listen to this week's discussion. All right, First Peter, chapter 1, beginning in verse 13. Here's what the Word of God says. Therefore, once you have your minds ready for action, and you are thinking clearly, place your hope completely on the grace that will be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed. Don't be conformed to your former desires, those that shaped you when you were ignorant, but as obedient children, you must be in every aspect of your lives, just as the one who has called you is. Verse 16, it is written, you will be holy because I am holy. Let's pause now to begin our time of study with a word of prayer. Would you join me in that? Father God, thank you for your word today, for the opportunity that we have to gather together, to hear from you as we open up your word together. May your spirits uh, open our hearts and our minds to what you want us to learn today. Would your spirit be our teacher in the midst of this time, we pray through Christ. Amen. All right, so First Peter... We think this letter was addressed to Christians, we said this last week, who were experiencing um, some kind of social costs because of their faith and their hope in Jesus Christ. They were scattered abroad. Sometimes they're, uh, they're called exiles, the elect exiles. Uh, we're not sure what form. Hey, David, have everybody mute. All right, everyone. Let me see. Can we get everybody to mute? Apparently there's some background noise. Good. Looks like. Good. Looks like everybody's muted. All right. Um, we aren't sure what form they took or how severe those, um, those challenges were for them, the social costs they were experiencing, because they were, as verse 17 will tell us, they were dwelling in a strange land. So here's my first question. Are there any ways that that description, dwelling in a strange land, um, experiencing social costs because of our faith, are there any ways that that also applies to us? Remember, we're reading it first from their perspective, but also we then are also reading within our our own current cultural situation. Are there any ways that description also applies to us, anyone? Just kind of raise your hand, I'll call out, or just wave at me, or if you're on, not showing video, you can hit the uh, raise the button bar at the bottom there. Raise your hand. Anybody? Any ways in which we can see any similarities to what what they're experiencing, or is it just totally foreign to us? Mm, See, this is the problem when everybody mutes. No one wants to <laughs> reach over and I'm like, okay, Phil, go ahead. Hit space bar or whatever. Yeah, go ahead. One of the things that, <clears throat> that we uh, experience with them is probably a calming. We need to be calm. At first, when crisis occurs, everybody's chaotic and everybody's kind of crazy. And as things go along, people adapt and they calm down and they start thinking more rationally and clearly. Okay, good. Anybody else? Any thoughts about what we may or may not have in common with them? No, everybody's just looking at me. All right. Well, on balance, I think whenever we ourselves um, start to stop thinking uh, and looking at the text from our own perspective. Now, notice now at the beginning, it says that... um, very clearly in verse 16, he starts out by encouraging the readers to prepare themselves mentally for what it means to live in their current situation. He writes, therefore, once you have your minds ready for action and you're thinking clearly, place your hope completely on the grace that will be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed. All right, so what is it that we should be saying to ourselves when we encounter the word wherefore. Anybody remember? Anybody want to, or therefore, or wherefore? 
Anybody want to take a stab at that? Anybody remember the cute little saying that we put in place there? All right, this isn't gonna work. We're gonna have to unmute because this isn't gonna fly if we do it this way. So if we can unmute and if you get noise in your background, you can go ahead and mute yourself, but otherwise this isn't gonna fly. All right, Mike? I don't remember the cute little saying, but whenever I see the word therefore, I've, I've been taught to, to read what was before that. Yes, because it's, it's connected to the sentence before. All right, and that's the important part, right? I like to say, wherefore, therefore, is that therefore, therefore. And that the idea is to go back. In other words, uh, go back to what was previously written, which we studied last week. Peter is moving from the description of the new hope we have in Christ because of the resurrection. That's chapter 1, verses 3 through 12. We studied that last week to now what it means in terms of their new lives in Christ. In other words, what is this new resurrection life that we have experienced because of the resurrection of Christ? What does that mean in terms of our new lives in Christ? So as I read it, Peter's opening statement, once you have your minds ready for action and you are thinking clearly to me, that seems to indicate that it is possible for their minds and our minds to not be ready for action and not be thinking clearly. So what might be some of the reasons they, and sometimes ourselves, might not be ready for action and not be thinking clearly? Fear. I'm sorry, say it again. Fear. Okay, so fear, fear of persecution. All right, so persecution, what else? Other things that would cause us to not be ready, to not have that clear mind. He seems to give us that option, right? So when you have, that's how he says it, right? Once you have your mind ready. Fear of known of what that of where it will bring you once you engage it all right so fear of the unknown yeah mike um not understanding not understanding um i'm trying to find the right words not understanding exactly what it means to have this hope and this and this belief system and when you don't understand it that could i think that could interfere in right. not being ready all right you don't understand all of the things and therefore you're you're not quite ready good what else sometimes i think um i can feel like i'm ready and then when I go through the distress and I, I get pushed off my seat, I, I have this sense, at least for a while, of lack of clarity. I feel like I'm not ready and I'm, I'm questioning whether or not the plan I had in my mind was a good plan. Um, so I would imagine for them, if they were going through this distress, they had never seen Jesus Christ. If I were them, I'd be wondering, okay, is this really a good plan for me and my family to follow this person I've never seen before? All right. So the idea of sec potentially second guessing. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. Yeah, good. Any I other? think just our innate resistance to change. That's good. Great. Would hold us back. Yeah. I think panic. So you have a plan, but then you panic, and so then you think about now instead of thinking about what your plan was. That's good, yeah. So what might some of the antidotes be for that? In other words, if we find ourselves not ready for action, or if they did, and, and not ready to really be thinking clearly, what are some of the antidotes to that? What are, what are some of the things we can do to prepare ourselves? Prayer is always a good one. Okay, good. What else? Spending time in the Word. All right, spending See if it might be God's will or if it's your will. All right. Trying to figure out which one it is. Good. Mike? He seems to imply with that initial verse that 
there there needs to be time made to do those things like pray like like get into the word and reorient oneself good mike um remembering to surround yourself as much as you can with other believers such as this gathering and the thursday night gathering and fellowshipping together at home and things like that good journaling also yeah excellent good all of those in other words the idea is it seems as though peter is letting us know that there is some sort of preparation that that is required that takes place it just doesn't happen like willy-nilly there's something that needs to take place in order for as it says in the rest of verse 13 it's an exhortation to place your hope completely on the grace that will be revealed so my question here about hope is this is hope or hoping let's put it that way is hoping mental or physical effort or both or neither hoping mental or physical effort and if so how so what kind of effort is needed i'm gonna go with both because while well, it's a both and because you need that mental to have that hope but really that hope personified is the physical aspect of you doing something with that hope in mind excellent good think of gardening like planting your seed hoping that it will grow right but you have to you have to actually plant the seed mm. you have to start with something you have to put something into action yeah well said Other thoughts on hoping, mental, or physical effort, how so? What kind of effort is needed? What does that effort involve then? Mike? Going along with what Chris was saying, once you plant the seed, you just you don't just sit there and hope. You you water it and you you fertilize it and you make you know, you do things in that hope. And before you plant the seed, you start the compost pile like months ahead. So all that preparation we just talked about in the first part of the verse, right? The things you have to prepare for before that. Yeah, good. Any other thoughts on what it what kind of effort it involves? Place your hope on the grace that will be revealed. My aunt had a saying. It's when you find yourself in hell, put your head down and keep on going. <laughs> Yeah, wow, I hadn't thought about it that way, but that's a good segue because a, a good question for us to consider as well is how do we maintain hope when hope is difficult? Maybe that's one of those. Keep your head down and recognize the both and, the mental and the physical effort that's required to persevere in the midst of that. Yeah, good. Any other thoughts on that? How do we maintain hope when hope is sometimes difficult? I think that we have to remember that the Bible doesn't say that trials aren't going to happen. It says that trials are going to happen and we have to still keep going in anyway. And so I know for me, I have my specific Bible verses for when I feel anxious. I know, okay, if I say this, it gives me a chance to breathe and act. And so recognizing that it doesn't mean everything's going to be easy, but when trials come that you have to exercise that faith and that hope even more so when things are great. Mm, yeah, well said, good. Yeah, Mike? I, I find it easier to maintain hope when, when I share my, my weakness, my challenges, my doubt with the other believers. Um, for me, yeah, I like what Johannes was saying. I was just thinking, I'm, I don't have any go-to verses. I need to have some go-to verses, but for me, it's when I'm able to go to someone that has like, you know, that is like-minded and that's how, what helps me maintain that hope. Oh, great. Excellent. Yeah. That ties nicely to our conversation Thursday about the importance of community, right? And bonding together and being there with one another. Um, encourage anyone who wants to join us on Thursday nights. We're having a great time, aren't we? Thursday nighters. We're having a, we're having a ball. All right, so he goes on then in verse 14, Peter says in verse 14, don't be conformed to your former desires, those that shaped you, 
when you were ignorant. I like that. When you were ignorant. Ignorant meaning you were lacking all of the proper information. You're not stupid. You aren't dumb. You're ignorant. You didn't know all the information, right? So what do you think it means to be conformed to your former desires that shaped you when you were ignorant? Maybe can we think of any examples of that and, and what makes them ignorant? Conform to your former desires that shaped you when you were ignorant. Can you think of some examples of that? Uh, for them, it might have been uh, idol worship, other, other gods. Yeah, good. Worshiping other gods because that was the expectation, the norm of the day. Good. Don't be conformed to your former desires, those that shaped you when you were ignorant. Can you think of examples? How about even from your own lives before you were a follower? If you can think back to those days, things that you did that were ignorant. For me, a lot of it was self-doubt, and it still is. It creeps up from time to time. Okay. Self-doubt. All right, self-doubt. I'm not spending enough time in the Word because God doesn't want us to doubt ourselves. Okay. Others. So the more um, worldly, like uh, the man who uh, dies with the most toys wins, that statement. <laughs> like just the worldly acquisition is your, your being, uh, um, your goal in life. Good. Excellent. I view it like from an image of like you were held in the shell that was shaped and formed, you know, that was your former desires. And when Christ freed us, we were freed from that captivity, that form that we were stuck in. And it's a reminder to not go back. We're free from that shell that we were living in. And it's a reminder that we need to stay, don't go back to the previous. Good. Yeah, other thoughts, anybody else? Mike? As a former Catholic, there was a time when I believed that the ritual of the Mass and the other sacraments uh, that, that we engaged in was the reason for my salvation. Um, I did not understand the significance of those traditions. Um, I just, I always was taught or, or thought that if I did that, then I would be right with God. Mm. And so that was uh, a form of ignorance mm. on my part too. Oh, good. Excellent. Anybody else? Any other thoughts to that? So Dan, you mentioned that uh, you didn't, not wanting to be boxed in and held in by some of those old ignorant um, desires. So I'll ask you, you don't have to be the first to jump in, but I'll ask it to the whole group as well. Um, are we as Christians, are we to be conformed to any desires? In other words, would it be right for Christians to be conformed to some desires? And if so, which ones? And then maybe how are they different from the ignorant kind? Well, I believe we're supposed to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. I like that. Moving from conformed, acted upon, to transformed, a new person. Okay, good. Others? To be right for Christians to be conformed to some desires, or as Dan said, transformed, Mike? Some of, some of us have natural desires to serve others. Whether and before we were believers, we might have already been like that. Um, I would think those types of desires would still be desires to that would translate into new believership so how are those different from the ignorant kind folks how are these new desires that we all agree could be part of our our followership how are they different from the ignorant kind i think the fact that peter is even acknowledging that the people in this church are distressed that they've been affected is a very significant christian approach because if you were a poor person back then, which I'm assuming a lot of the people that were in this church, whether or not you were affected didn't matter. 
you know, you were for the most part a cog in a, you know, in a giant machine. The fact that a person who is above you, authority figure like Peter would even acknowledge that, yeah, you are affected. I mean, the truth is a lot of times that's where I have to personally start, which is just acknowledge, wait a minute, I'm affected. I, I have to, I have to take a moment to experience God's grace. Mm. Yeah, good. Well, and as you're talking about traits, you know, and are some good or bad, you know, your image of the Enneagram, and when we were in our, we have our negative traits that we can move towards or our positive traits. So I think you can almost argue that we can move away from those negative traits that we've had. And as we grow and transform, we're moving towards those positive traits that, you know, are a healthy place. Yeah, excellent. Just bringing in that whole um, an Enneagram or Enneagram, depending on how you like to say it, that whole idea of, yeah, when we're under stress and in certain situations, we tend to move toward one and try to, now that we're no longer ignorant of that, right, we know that that's there, we can then put um, stop gaps or be, since we're aware of it, we can then, you know, try to work and put in practices that will help us move toward, you know, what it looks like for us to, as we grow in our faith. Excellent, excellent observation. Now, Peter says, going on in 15 and 16, that we ought to be holy in every aspect of our lives. And we know that the root meaning of holiness is something along the lines of separation or being distinct. Be holy as I'm holy. Obviously, we can't be perfect in the same way that God is perfect. So perfection's not in there, but separate and distinct. God is holy because he is separate and distinct from evil. But we ordinarily also think of holiness as meaning pure or better. Am I right? Pure or better alongside of distinction and separate, right? So how might separate people or distinct people also be pure or better? And maybe the converse of that question, how might they also not be? They could be separate and distinct and be pure or better but we could also be separate and distinct and not necessarily pure or better. Any examples of that or thoughts on that idea? Is it possible to be distinct and separate and not necessarily be pure or better? Um, I think the examples of Christians today and how they're perceived uh, can be both examples of good and bad about how separate and pure and not separate and better. Because, uh, you know, we're supposed to be a light on a, on a hill, an example, and so we call attention to us, and but depending on those behaviors, <laughs> might uh, change how those uh, Christians are perceived. All right, other thoughts? Is it I think about, um when it says you're supposed to be in the world and not of the world. And so that makes you separate. But then when you're not of the world, then you get a holier than thou attitude, which then makes that not really a good trait. Yeah, it's not, I guess my point, and I'm suggesting that Peter is opening the door that it's possible for us to think of, of ourselves as separate and distinct called out people of God. God reflectors is the language that we use here at the table. But it's also possible for that to be done in ways that are not pure and better. And you guys have hit on a couple of those. And obviously, if we had the time, we could dig even more into that idea. Um, I've met a number of people who are just weird. I'm just saying it's just weird. I'm, I'm just saying it's just weird ways of being separate and distinct that I don't know necessarily make it pure or better. Um, and that sometimes even adds that challenge because. Um, Peter goes on now to speak directly to their present situation as the term he uses is elect exiles or people dwelling in a strange land. And so he's going to explore this concept in more detail toward the end of the next chapter, which we'll dive into beginning next week. But listen to how he sets up the discussion as we continue on in our text, 1 Peter chapter 1. Listen to, you, listen to me as I read from 17 down to verse 21. Since you call upon a father who judges all people according to their actions without favoritism, 
you should conduct yourselves with reverence during the time of your dwelling in a strange land. Verse 18, live in this way, knowing that you were not liberated by perishable things like silver or gold from the empty lifestyle you inherited from your ancestors. Instead, you were liberated by the precious blood of Christ like that of a flawless, spotless lamb. Verse 20, Christ was chosen before the creation of the world, but was not only, but was only, excuse me, revealed at the end of time. This was done for you, who through Christ are faithful to the God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory. So now your faith and hope should rest in God. So what I've done here for you is 13 through 16, um, in Greek is essentially one sentence, and now 17 through 21 in Greek is also one sentence. Of course, our translation helps us a little bit by breaking it down into some thoughts there. But I want us to begin looking closely at verse 17, because I want you to see if you can't pick something out. I think Peter has two distinct parts to the verse. He begins with, since you call upon a father who judges all people according to their actions without favoritism. That's an independent clause right there. And then the second one, you should conduct yourself with reverence during the time of your dwelling in a strange land. I'm arguing that the word since and the phrase you should connect these two parts. So what do you see as the connection between the two? In other words, having a different way of life always results in something, all right? So what do you see as the connection between the first part, that we call upon a father who judges all people according to their actions without favoritism, and the second part, you should conduct yourself with reverence during the time of your dwelling in the strange land. What do you see as the connection between those two? Mike? Um, I see the first part being an, an, an identity and the second part being a resulting action of that identity. Okay. All right. An identity and following and a following action. Okay. Others. Connections. It seems like it's a motivator. Since uh, you believe in God, call upon God then it seems like you would want to be reverent, act accordingly. It's a motivator for why you'd want to act reverently. Okay, Courtney Shadle? I was just going to say, I mean, I, the thing that sticks out to me is the without favoritism. So the first one is kind of like saying you, you can have individualism, you know, so you should conduct yourself that way, but it's not a competition. Mm, I like that. Good. Other thoughts about how those two distinct parts of the verse, how they are connected. So let me ask you, put a, put a question maybe a little bit differently. What does it mean then, and this might help us, what does it mean to live with reverence? Is he talking about reverence to God or reverence to the people they're living with in the strange land? That's what, when it talks about God and favoritism, and then it talks about reverence in a strange land, it makes me think that he's maybe discussing how we're supposed to treat the people that are maybe not believers or people that were there when they arrived. All right, I think that's a good observation. I think that's, especially since he uses the the part earlier on about since we call upon a father who judges people according to their actions, excuse me, without favoritism, right? Then he uses that phrase, live with reverence, right? And you're, you're suggesting that because it's, it's connected to in a strange land that he's, he's trying to draw that parallel to them. In the same way you reverence God as the one who um, judges all people according to their actions without favoritism, that we should be doing the same thing. Because we're not better than anyone else. Good. That's an excellent observation. Other thoughts? I warned you, it was going to be a challenging text. 
course, I could just answer, ask a bunch of yes and no questions and fill in the blank questions, but that doesn't seem to serve our purposes, right? Well, because the Bible talks about the fact that God doesn't judge us, that we should not judge one another or even outsiders. So living with reverence for you has, and for both of, I've heard a couple of your responses now, has to do with um, how we view other people, i.e. with a lack of judgment. Am I right? If you, those of you who were involved, like Chris and Mimi shaking her head, is that what you were basically saying, Chris? Something along those, I think she's shaking her head again. Yeah, there she goes. I, when I'm reading this, it says, you know, Father judges all people according to their actions, and therefore you should conduct yourselves. So I'm, to me, I'm like, well, God's going to judge my behavior <laughs> too, Ooh. a little. Um, that's kind of like, uh, I better behave myself because my actions are going to be judged while dwelling in this strange land. You're no different than, yeah, you're still part of everyone upon which God is watching and paying attention. Yeah, good observation. I hadn't even thought about that one. Good one. Any other thoughts on that? Is there any connection here to the previous uh, piece that we read about um, being holy because he is holy? If we are God's reflectors and we are living in this strange land and he judges without favor or he judges without favoritism, and if we revere our uh, creation in him, and as his reflector to this world, then we should should be the same way. Well, I think there's absolutely, we would always certainly think that that would have a, a huge part of it, a huge influence, what he's already set up, because he used that language a lot, right? Since, right? So yeah, you're, he's drawing on um, all of those past things he's done. Excellent, excellent catch there, David. What, let me put it this what makes it difficult? What are some of the things that might make that difficult for them and for us? to live with reverence in a strange land. Because Paul says later on, right, that we're not, we're in this world, but not of this world. This world is not our, our permanent home. We're strangers in a foreign land, right? All of that. So what makes it difficult for them and us to live with reverence in the midst of our current situation, our, our culture, not necessarily our situation? Mike? Well, those who they're still living among those who are still carrying, carrying on with idol worship and, and they don't have the same hope that these Christians have. And as human beings, we always want to kind of belong. And if those that we're close to, if they're close to people that haven't come to the belief the belief in Christ yet, they may want to engage with them in, a, uh, in traditions or activities that are not holy. Um, that's it. That's all I got. <laughs> it, if reverent, reverence is deep respect, basically. So um, if you are living in this strange land, there's different customs, different things that they think are okay that you don't think are okay, or they're just different ways of doing it that you're not used to. You may not have the utensils to do it their way or the knowledge base, so on and so forth. So it's, diff it's just difficult to act with deep respect for things that you don't have a background in or how to do it or um, how to approach it if it's something that you're not in agreement with so on and so forth yeah I like that because um, those of you who have traveled with me and, and you could do this overseas anywhere when you travel but because Chris and I and others of you have spent quite a bit of time in, in Uganda one of the things that comes to my mind is um, when we gather for a, a church service there, or if you happen to follow Michael or anyone on Facebook who are you know, posting their sermons and they're, they're dancing and so forth, it's, you know, one of my encouragements to people is learning how to respect the culture that you're in and not saying it has to be a certain way in order for it to be, you know, worship and, and so forth. And so, yeah, I think that's exactly right, Nancy, just learning how to um, to have that respect for those cultures. Phil? I think that's exactly right because it ties back to the passage to try to live in peace with everyone. Yeah, we talked and about that's what 
people to do. And when we do respect and even obey certain laws and customs, I mean, within, of course, reason, um, then we are able to live in peace with others. And we give an example like we're supposed to be. We're a reflector at that point. Excellent. Now notice, verse 18 now, Peter reminds us and his readers, the original hearers, as to why they should live this way. He says they're to live this way because they were not liberated by perishable things like silver or gold, but by the precious blood of Christ, who he goes on to describe as flawless, the flawless, spotless lamb. What do you think Peter, what do you think is Peter's purpose in drawing that comparison? He's drawing a comparison between perishable things like silver or gold, with Christ, the blood of Christ, the flawless, spotless lamb. Do we think of silver and gold as perishable or prone to decay? So what do we think Peter is trying to suggest by pointing them or painting them in that way? Doesn't silver and gold over time oxidize and start reducing if they're not being taken care of? Uh, Silver, yes. Gold, no. Not so much. But gold can be melted down, chipped away. Uh, Gold's a very soft metal, so it can be broken apart and scattered if it's uh, exposed to very, like, not trauma, but lots of force and just roughed up and everything, so it doesn't look as beautiful anymore. It seems to me that maybe he's talking about what silver and gold can buy and what it represents yeah. more than the actual substance themselves. Yeah, I mean, Courtney brought up the value of gold is constantly in flux, you know, and so its worth is constantly changing, where the precious blood of Christ never changes in its value. Ah, well said. Or the possibility that it, you can't take it with you when you die, so in that sense it's perishable in the long run. It's true. You can't you can't eat gold. That's it's it's subject to the vagaries of the market. Also, the the silver and gold can be obtained by impure ways. Mm. Somebody in our group mentioned that um, during our times right now, that we are learning that we do not need as much stuff. And when I think of gold and silver, we're learning that that stuff doesn't matter as much anymore. And that, you know, or um, in our mind, in the, in the word and um, journaling and doing things like that has become more of our time than stuff. Good. We've talked in the past about earthly treasures as opposed to heavenly treasures. And this is another example of that, I think. The earthly treasures that some people think are important and, you know, build you up and make you wealthy is different from the heavenly treasure, which is that Jesus came and gave us and we have a place in his house Mm -hmm. at the end of this earthly lifestyle. Excellent, yeah. And remember now, we t- I think part of the imagery too that you've, you've hit on it, um, the idea of silver and gold being brought to their most valuable states through that difficult process of fire and tribulation and trial, so to speak. And he's been hitting on that as a theme, right? They're, they're undergoing some trial and tribulation for the place that they're in. Um, obviously, I think there's a connection there as well. But I want to point out one more thing here in this section, and, and, and maybe it's just me, and so you can say, David, your brain just goes weird places, um, which you all know is true. Uh, but back in verse 17, Peter describes the father, as we saw, as an impartial judge. In other words, he said, since you, let me look and find it, since you call upon a father who judges all people according to their actions without favoritism, he's an impartial judge. And he says that the appropriate attitude toward the father then is to live reverentially or reverential living or living with respect. All right. So you got a father who's an impartial judge and our attitude and response should be reverential living. And now in verse 21, he suggests something slightly different. He says, 
who through Christ are faithful to the God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory. So now your faith and hope should rest in God. So in verse 21, he suggests that our response to the Father raising Christ from the dead should be faith and hope. So to me, there's a contrast here. One is the attitude that we have toward God as our judge, which is respect, reverential living. In some places, it's called fear, the fear of God. But then in 21, he suggests that our response to the Father raising Christ from the dead should be faith and hope. So how do you think we're to understand these contrasting responses to God in his actions? In other words, are they related? Can we have them at the same time, or is it something that fluctuates back and forth, or does one come first and then the other? This idea of reverential fear or reverential respect versus faith and hope. Any ideas on that, or is it just me picking at something that may not really be that big of a deal? I think one leads to the other. Which one would lead to which one? The... Um, the faith and hope leads to the reverential living. Okay. Other thoughts? Maybe, maybe it's both and. Maybe the reverential living contributes to the faith and hope. Other thoughts? Other people's thoughts? Yeah. It's an interesting contrast. Maybe they're, they're not separated. They're not, they're inseparable, maybe. Where the faith and hope leads to reverential living. The reverential living increases the faith and hope. And so you cannot separate them. Oh, that's an interesting thought. Courtney? I didn't see it as being in contrast, I guess. Okay. I feel like having not fear as in afraid, but that fear of God sets you up to have that faith and hope. I don't see them as as in opposition. Oh, good. Good catch. Mm -hmm. I think it can also relate to um, him being our father. When you think of parenting, when you parent your children, your children do have a bit of maybe reverential fear of you, but they also have faith and hope in you that you have their best interest. And so I, I agree with Mike that I don't think you can really separate them out. Good. Any other thoughts? All right. Peter concludes our section of text this morning with, with this command in verse 22 and 23 um, a, he says, as you set yourself apart, by your obedience to the truth. So that's the setting apart piece that we heard before defined clearly for us by your obedience to the truth so that you might have genuine affection for your fellow believers, love each other deeply and earnestly and do this because you have been given new life or new birth. So as you set yourself apart by your obedience to the truth, so that you could have this genuine affection for fellow believers. Then his command is love each other deeply and earnestly because you've been given this new birth. So Peter suggests that our ability to have genuine affection and deep love for each other is predicated on our setting ourselves apart and our obedience to truth. Do you see that? The ability to have that affection and deep love for each other, which is what he is commanding us to do, is predicated on what he said earlier, before that in the verse, the setting ourselves apart and our obedience to the truth. So my question to you is, how are setting ourselves apart and our obedience to truth, how are they related and then following that, how are they catalysts for genuine affection and that deep an earnest love that we're commanded to give to one another. So how are setting themselves ourselves apart and our obedience to truth related? And then how are they catalysts for genuine infection and deep, earnest 
love. Anyone who want to take a stab at that one? Even? For me, it kind of boils down to putting our personal agendas aside and thinking of others. Uh -huh. Excellent. Nancy? And you're able to do that. You're only able to do that through the power of the Holy Spirit. To do that well, to do that purely, you're only able to do that through the power of the Holy Spirit. So setting yourself apart is like a focusing on God so that he can do through you the love and affection. Yeah, that's makes, genuine yeah excellent meaning i feel like in the world that we live in, you, hold on just one second go ahead erica oh say yeah. again erica go ahead so, given the world that we live in it's almost like if we are being obedient then we will automatically be set apart because those behaviors look so different than the behaviors of you know just anyone yeah well said well said. Isn't it interesting for those who are with us on Thursday night, this past Thursday night at our Thursday night study table, that the conversation was about, about the difference between genuine love and a put on or a fake imitation love. Isn't it interesting how these, I didn't plan it this way, but those verses kind of, those themes kind of connect, right? So that setting ourselves apart and being obedient to that Holy Spirit, which is, you know, the purpose or the reason we're able to have that resident Holy Spirit in our lives is because of the resurrected Christ, who says, now that I'm resurrected, I can be taken away, and the one who's going to come is going to be even better for you than if I were to stay here myself, right? So how are they catalysts for that genuine affection and that love? Any other thoughts on that? I was just going to say that God's love is a very infectious love. If it is shared, especially with fellow believers, that sense of, of pride and wholeness that you feel when the spirit is in you and you share with each other, it's just a magnificent thing. And we've had that several times with our women's group too, where we share where God has spoken to us through our journaling or whatever, and uh, the love that you can feel and respect for each other is just infectious and wonderful. So there are a number, as we wrap this up, there are a number of imperatives or commands that we've looked at throughout this passage, but I think we can group them into two general commands. Live holy and love others. Live holy and love others. That's the abbreviated version of what Peter is communicating. So if my editor was sitting down and I wrote three sentences that were le that long, she could say, she would say, you probably could say it in one sentence or two sentences, live holy, love others, period, period, and get across the same idea. But my final question is a, like a practical one for us. So where do you, where do I find it most difficult to live holy and love others in our daily lives. Where do you find it most difficult, or maybe you could start with which of those two, maybe you find it most difficult for you, but this idea of living holy and loving others in our daily life, where is that most difficult for you guys? Before I've had my coffee. Oh, okay. Well, she is honest and she is vulnerable and transparent. She can't let her call for you if she's hangry. I think it's loving others because I, I think I said this Thursday, sometimes you just don't like some people. <laughs> Amen, sister. <laughs> Other thoughts? I think mine's ego and pride. So the ego and pride makes it challenging for both living holy and loving others, both? Or does that uh, the other more, Phil? I think living holy so much, but loving others, sometimes I think the humility part, the ego and the pride overweighs what I should be listening and observing that others are trying to you know how they are that makes sense yeah maybe, um, maybe we should add 
being loved by others. It's not only a challenge to love others, sometimes it's a challenge to allow ourselves to be loved by others. Am I wrong? With the pride and the ego of, yeah, I don't really, I don't need help or, you know, however you want to phrase that language or things like that. Yeah. Any other thoughts on living holy and loving others? What, where we find it most difficult in our daily lives? Um, when I watch the news, I struggle having a loving attitude toward things and people that are happening. All right, so let's end it this way. What practical ways can we encourage each other in our attempts to live holy and love others during this time? Practical ways that we can encourage each other in our attempts to live holy and love others during this time. I think it. Uh, I think it helps to just sort of take a minute and acknowledge acknowledge one's circumstance. Like when I get into an argument with my little sister, I kind of have to think to myself, like, does this really need to go into a detailed argument with like you know a twelve year old, or should I just calm down and sort of, you know, end this argument here and there because it's really not worth it in the end, you know, and just sort of love her, you know. It's kind of hard to do that because you know, I'm really prideful. And, you know, just acknowledging the circumstance just kind of, you know, loving someone else when you don't want to. Excellent. Yeah. Wow. Thank you for sharing that. I think understanding a person's position in life, what they're going through, um, changes your whole perspective of things. I mean, someone that's lost a job, that's taking care of children in their home. Uh, they don't have financial means. Uh, maybe somebody's got COVID-19 and you look at me and I, my kids are all grown. Financially, I'm fairly stable right now. I don't have COVID. I mean, that whole thing, I understand why people want to go back to work even though I find it not the right thing to do. If I were in that circumstance, I think I'd probably take the risk. So empathy. Yeah, that's for em another way of saying that having empathy for others, yeah, in differing situations than your own. Yeah. There you go. You shorten it to just right. Yeah. <laughs> I'm in editorial mode here for the last couple of weeks. And real quick, caring, caring and helping, just with people, you know, struggling and yeah. reaching out to people. Yeah, good. Well, Next our neighbor. Emotionally. Yeah, emotionally. Yeah, because our like our neighbor, Chris will tell you, we had a. Um, I thought it was strange. All afternoon there were people next door, and um, I guess Chris, one of them had a birthday. I can't find Chris on the screen. There she is. Yeah. Had a birthday yesterday. I think, I think the older daughter turned sixteen. Oh, she turned sixteen, right? And so they had set up a table out by their mailbox. And people from their church, um, he's a minister at the Church of Christ around the corner, and uh, he's the family pastor, and his daughter turned 16, and all day long, people were coming up, but they had these tables set up so that if they sat down, they were definitely six feet apart, but a whole bunch of them, like, ringed up around and, had, and stayed for, like, 45 minutes, an hour, and then a next wave. It's almost like they organized the wave. <laughs> And she must have been out there, Chris, what, four or five hours? Wow. And people were just coming in. So, yeah, that's great, Jody. Good, good, good observation. Yeah, we remember leaving yesterday, and there was just a pile of presents right in front of their house. Yeah. <laughs> that's awesome. How else can we encourage, practical ways we can encourage each other to live holy and love others? Hey, I want to I share something briefly that kind of connects this piece at the end with the piece that you talked about at the front. Um, and, and also kind of is a practical way. So Kylie and I have been, uh, we were given right before this whole thing kicked off, we were given this uh, five minute uh, gratitude journal. And uh, we've kind of been working through it every morning and every night, going through things we're thankful for, et cetera, et cetera. But there's a great quote that was on our thing this morning, uh, which I think kind of applies to all of this. Uh, it says, the greatest of human emotions is love. The most valuable of human gifts is the ability to learn. Therefore, learn to love. And I just think that kind of 
beautifully ties together your opening piece about what are we, what new skills are we developing, and then what are practical ways that we can do this. And I think that's uh, learn to love. Uh, well said. Thank you, David. Thank you, David. Well, excellent. Well, we close each of our gatherings here, um, whether it's a Zoom gathering or um, in real life gathering, which we hope will be sometime soon. I know as of now, your leadership team is, is looking that we'll be meeting this way at least um, through the month of May, unless something significant changes in our community and the governor changes things. So we'll at least say for the next three or four weeks, um, we're going to be in this format and we remind ourselves um, and we are obedient to Christ's command to, to remember his sacrifice on our behalf. So hopefully you have your items for communion alongside of you there because these are the simple elements that we use, the bread which represents the body of Christ and his blood, which represents the life that he gave on our behalf. And we first receive in humility with the words, the body of Christ given for us. And then we dip it in the juice to the words, the blood of Christ shed for us. Um, and then if you are with someone else um, during this Zoom gathering, you then turn and offer that to the person next to you in that same humility with those same words, the body of Christ given for you and the blood of Christ shed for you. So this here is the body of Christ that was given for you and the blood of Christ shed for you. Body of Christ given for you and the blood of Christ shed for you. given for you then and the blood of Christ shed for you. Elder David Knight, would you close us in a word of prayer, please, as we conclude our time together, and then I'll have just a few announcements to share. Sure thing. Uh, Heavenly Father, we just thank you for uh, the ability to gather like this, um, the opportunity to share, uh, continue to share in community, and um, to share your love. Uh, we just pray that uh, we will be reminded uh, this day and every day to um, seek ways to love one another and find ways to be loved ourselves. We thank you for your love. We thank you for your sacrifice. And uh, we just pray that you will continue to guide us and direct us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, before I, I turn you loose, just a couple of, um, of reminders. First, um, we all hear it together that, um, yes, we are all in this together. That's a common theme. I'm watching all of the television commercials. It doesn't matter what what products being sold, um, everything is something to do with the fact that we are all in this get together. And that's true, we're all in together, but it hasn't affected all of us equally. And so a number of you, a number of people within our community have come forward and stepped forward and said, we, and have given money and provided funding for those people who are more uh, disproportionately affected. And so we have been, I've been trying to do my best to kind of keep up with those of us who are, um, been more affected by than by others, but I'm not always able to touch and know everything that's happening. So if you are someone in our community that is struggling or have someone that you know that's struggling in our community that you're connected to, that could use some help, um, you know, paying a bill or, you know, having money for groceries or something along those lines, um, please reach out to me. You can text me, you can email me. Um, and I also want to encourage people who, um, who I might not know have challenging circumstances to say, hey, we could use some help. That's why we're all here. Part of being part of this community is that we share and the blessing that God's given us. So please let me know, email me, text me. I'm trying to reach out and touch as many of you each week um, as we possibly can. So please do that. Um, those of you who are still... Um, gainfully employed and we're moving right along. It's very helpful to us if you continue to, to make sure that we're getting our tithes and offerings because part of what we're doing in our benevolence budget is helping those people. Um, and some of that help extends beyond even our borders. I got a, another request even this morning from 
um, some of our team over in Africa who are still in Uganda, who are still in lockdown, and we're helping some of them as well through um, our benevolence giving. So if you are in need of, or you have something you would like to share, just reach out to me. I'll talk to you about the easiest way to make that happen. And um, we'll, you know, we'll try to do our best to make sure it gets to the people who need it when they need it. And let me see. Oh, and then this week, uh, just to let you know that we've, we're going to be in our third week of a midweek gathering, if you want to call it that. So on Thursday evenings from seven to eight, we're doing a study on the importance of community. And the last two weeks have been great. This week, we're going to turn our attention to an old First Testament story in Exodus 18 about um, how to establish proper boundaries, even in the midst of quarantine, because, you know, there's still boundaries, conversations that we can have. And so I encourage all of you to join us Thursday evening at um, seven, from seven till eight. All right, anything else? Anybody else have something they want to share, Mike? We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Table Dallas podcast. We invite you to join the conversation at one of our upcoming tables. To learn more about us, please check out our website at thetabledallas.com. We are saving a seat for you at the table.